Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVM LP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI out of Taos, New Mexico, Cultural Energy Radio. I'd like to thank Walter Parks for our theme song. Thank you, Walter Parks, for all the good music you do. WalterParks.com if you're interested in any of Walter's music. And if you would like to reach out to me, JamesNave.com. That's my website. Nave is spelled N-A-V-E. Would love to hear from you. You know, drop me a line. Tell me what your story is, wherever you are in the world. Also, if you'd like to join me on Saturday morning, I host a writing gathering. My business partner, collaborative partner, Allegra Houston, and I do this. It's at noon on East Eastern time and 10 a.m. Mountain time, which is where we broadcast from out of Taos, New Mexico. So if you'd like to join, you can find out all about that. Imaginativestorm.com. Imaginativestorm.com. If you've been listening to this show, and I hope you have, you know I have all kinds of folks coming on to this program, many of whom I've known for a long time, some of whom I've only met, and occasionally I'll get somebody on I've, I've, I've never had an opportunity to engage with, except for a, maybe a few minutes before the interview. Today, I have somebody on this show I've known for a long, long time. Her name is Gail Danley. She's a poet, an educator. She does many, many things in the world of language and communication. So, Gail Danley, welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio. It's a pleasure, Jim. Thank you. I'm glad we're catching up with each other. I, I'm glad we're catching up with each other, too. And just a little note for those of you listening, you heard Gail call me Jim. And most of the time I go by James Nave, which is my website. But Jim... That's that's the name I had when I was younger, and that's the name people use when they've known me a long time. So when I hear Jim, it, it rings well in my ears because it takes me back to the to the to the other days and brings me forward to now. So, Gail, again, thanks for for being on this call. And I'd like to start by asking you to reflect back on the times in the early days of the slam when you got started as a poet, as a performance poet, and how did that all happen? And the reason I'm asking is because I have other folks that have been on this call and I like to archive some of those early days stories. And from there, we'll build into stories of your, your educational approach that you're taking in schools now. So you've had a big, long, wide, broad active career as a spoken word language artist. So tell us a story. How did all this start? <laughs> okay, okay. I'm trying to think of one out of the millions. When I won nationals in Asheville in 1994, I embarked on this tour of America where I was going from cafe to coffee shop and I was performing my poetry and, you know, I was doing a lot of the stuff that I had done at nationals. And that was a lot of fun. I was a young girl meeting people, crashing on folks' sofas. Anyway, so I ended up after the tour back at home in Atlanta and I went to 
our local poetry venue, which at that time was a coffee shop on Emory University's campus. And I did my thing. And when it was over, I think I went to the bathroom and the waiter followed me and he had a, a phone in his hand. And he said, this woman just left the restaurant, but she told me she really wants to talk to you. So here's the phone. And it turns out, Jim, that the woman on the other line had been at the show at the coffee house and she was a professor at Emory University. I think she taught something like Russian. And she was so blown away by my poetry that she wanted to connect me with her mother. And her mother was a big influencer in upstate New York in arts education. So she said, call my mom, Gail, and tell her what you do. And I'm gonna call her too. And let's just see what happens. Okay, okay, thank you, bye. And I followed up, cause that's the magic key. I called her mom and she got me into one school in upstate New York. I think it was like Ithaca or Utica or Syracuse. I don't know, Swigo. She got me in and it became what I did. It became what I loved. That road and going up there, those nine hours, I'd leave home at 2 a.m. in time for a 9 a.m. assembly. I was half asleep for so many of those years but I do it, man, and I made a name for myself doing it. I think that it was all about doing what I did and following up. Following up is everything, Jim. Well, you referenced the, the national championship win, and for those folks out there wondering what that reference means, in 1994, the National Poetry Slam championships were held in Asheville. And back in that time, there were two winners. You had teams competing and one team won. And then you had the individuals competing and somebody won. And Gail won in the night at the 1994 National Poetry Slam Championships in Asheville. So, Gail, before we get into the work you do in schools, I'd love for you to talk a bit more about your experience in Asheville at the National Poetry Slam Championships. And a reason why that's important, because as the years have gone by, the Poetry Slam community has remained in many ways the same. It's you stand on the stage, you perform a poem in three minutes and you get scores from five judges and then you drop the high score and drop the low score and keep the middle three and somebody wins at the end of the evening. So talk a little bit about your memories of the National Poetry Slam Championship in, in Asheville to give the folks listening a sense of what that community was like and, and maybe even how it worked, what we did way back then. I had come to Asheville for the first time three weeks or so before the competition and kind of stumbled into a place, I don't even remember where it was, where they were talking about nationals were coming up. I'd never heard of that. They were talking about Patricia Smith. I'd never heard of her. And I was just so open back then. And I still am. I was so open to the next level. And I said, you know what? I'm going to come back for this national thing. And I went back and I won. I was so crazy. I was so fearless. I was so 
focused and I was so open. It was fun. It was like being drunk 24 seven and being around people who finally were your family. So Asheville for me was like coming home and I didn't even know I had left home. So I would go out during the day and I'd go to different poetry readings. And that was really cute back then too. I remember being a cute lady. And then I would go to the competitions and I would do my thing because I didn't know anybody. So I had nothing to lose, no reason to be self-conscious at all. And toward the end of the week, folks were coming up to me and they were saying, you know, you're gonna win. And I was like, really? <laughs> and, I, and I actually, Jim, went to the venue where they were doing finals. So during the day, I was hanging out by myself. I didn't know anybody. So during the day of the night of the finals, I went to the venue, which was this grand, lavish theater. And I stood on stage and I looked out into the empty room and I did my poetry. This black man who was, I think, working the light. So I don't know what he was doing. He said, I don't know who else is in this uh, contest, sugar, but you got it. You're going to win. It was so ordained. It's just really wonderful memories. And you talked about how you felt like you came home to this community. What was it about the poetry slam community that made you feel like you came home? Because these were all strangers from all over the, the country. How does that happen? How come you felt at home? I think a couple of things were in play. There's something about Asheville, and I'm coming back next month, right? There's something about Asheville that feels like home. I'm from the South. I'm from Atlanta. Something about the warmth. It's something about the acceptance of the arts. It's something about those mountains there where, you know, you got all that country, but then it's meeting all that city. And so it was, the setting was so right for it. And then you have all these people who have been hurt, maybe cast aside, maybe they're the failure in the family, maybe not. But they're all in this one place. They, they all understand that if they don't have anything else, they have these words. And so it felt like a real urgent do or die kind of thing. It was magical. It was magical. And I feel open to something like that happening, happening again. Like, I don't feel like, and I'll never feel that way again. Oh, no, 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 no. I think that wherever poets are gathered, there is magic. Right there, right there where we are at all times. I've heard people say more than once, poetry saved my life. And I think that may be true in a lot of cases. Have you heard people say that? Mm -hmm. Why do you think they say poetry saved my life? It might be a choice between taking another drug that could kill them or writing about it. I think for me, it's like always knowing I have a friend, no matter what no matter what time of day or night, no matter what I need to confess, I always have my notebook 
And that, I tell you what, if the plan was for me to die at 67, this notebook and pen thing is at least gonna buy me another 30 years. I don't think I'm out of here till I'm 97. And I owe a lot of that to being able to write it down, especially in my family. I just left my family. You and me were on the on the Zoom the other day and I was in the car coming back from Atlanta, right? And my family's the best. They're pretty conservative people, you know? To be able to, to know that I'm okay as I am and to have that confirmation every time I press my pen to my paper is a lifesaver in every sense of the word. How has your writing changed over the years as you've moved through each decade? Well, it sucks now. It was so passionate. It was so alive. It was so unafraid back then. I mean, how many years ago was that? How many years ago was 94? 94 was almost 27 years ago. I think I've lost some of that sense of I haven't lost all of it, thank God. But that sense of wonder, like if I turned on the radio and if I heard like some heinous story about some guy killing his girlfriend's son, letting the baby drown in the bathtub because he didn't like the baby or he didn't, he was jealous or he was insane. I would just back in the day, I would have to write about that, period. It could not exist inside of me and not make its way to the page. Now I hear stuff like that. Maybe I'm a little more jaded. Now I hear stuff like that, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm gonna write about it. Maybe I just put it somewhere like in my spine or something. Maybe I store it in my stomach. I think what's also changed, Jim, is I don't care as much as I used to about whether or not you're gonna like it. And that's that's some 55 year old woman there. I'm just gonna write this and it's gonna be all sloppy and it's all for me. And if you're fortunate enough that I share it with you, then man, you are really rolling. You must be somebody special. Cause I wrote for me. <laughs> so I think, I don't know. I think that's how it's changed. Is that a good thing, Jim, or is that horrible? Well, I don't know if it's a, a good thing or a horrible thing. What I am curious about is when we as creative people, as spoken word language artists, and I'm tending to say spoken word language artists more than spoken word poets, because we are poets and yet we work with language in all kinds of ways. So we are artistic with our use of the language and our sensibilities evolve. People start out young with the fire in their belly and they hear the story and they want to generate something based on that story. There's no, I wouldn't say rage, but there's certainly drive involved in it. But then as we mature, I'm wondering, Gail, are we losing something or are we gaining more nuance in developing our abilities to reflect more subtle ways? So it's not so much of a rage anymore or angst, it's more thoughtfulness. I think some of it is social media 
And I'm not hmm. really blaming it. I guess I'm thinking about the ways that we use it. So before we had it, we didn't really have a place to put stuff. Now we have a place to put stuff. Now I can go on Facebook and I can say, did you hear about that man in DC who put that baby in, you know, and then get all of this response. And so that part of me that needed to say something has said it. And so now that's, that's done. And then my girlfriend network now is humongous. Almost every night of the week, I am going out. I mean, literally with a different girlfriend. I went out with Megan last night. She's 33. I went out with Shirley last week. She's 87. I went out with Loretta on Sunday. She's 54, right? She's my baby. I'm 55, right? And so now I have all of these containers. I can say to these women, Man, I'm feeling so-and-so right now. I have places to put stuff. And back then, I don't think I had as many places to put stuff. So I don't know if that's good. I mean, it's great. It's great to have the support. It's great to have emotional infrastructure. I don't know how great it is in terms of continuing to generate new poems. It's interesting because I'm thinking as you're talking, that you're quite right. We have more outlets now to put our, our stuff out there in whatever form we choose to put it out. And in a sense that allows us to vet material. So a lot of the stuff that we wrote about in the past gets to go out by way of a conversation with a girlfriend or on social media. Then what remains are other things to write about. So I wonder if the well ever grows dry. You know, now I can say, I can say I need to write a poem about being at Uncle Claude's bedside on Sunday. And 45 poems came from being at that bedside as he took those last three breaths. I think he waited for me. I can say that to somebody. I can say, Gail, how was it? How was Atlanta? And I'll say, it was incredible. Uncle Claude waited for me. I got 45 poems just watching Aunt Ernestine lay the top of her body on top of her dead husband and squeezing his arms to see if there was still warmth there. I can say that and then nobody will hold me accountable. Nobody will say, well, when you're going to write those poems? Now it's up to me because I'm not as much a part of a writing community as I used to be. Now, that's interesting. I wonder if you were a part of a writing community, would you generate more material? Sure. Sure. Here we arrive at this idea of the writer doing it alone. We have to write alone because we we we, we write alone because that's how it, it happens. And yet it also brings up the idea of the community, which is, takes us back to the to Asheville. When you were there on the stage at the National Poetry Slam Championships, I was on that stage, too. I was I was on the Asheville team. And I believe we came in fourth that night because Danny Solis decided to do a different poem than he had rehearsed. And it didn't quite work as well as he thought it would, although he was called to do it. And yet I was on that stage and I remember all the vitality. And I think one of the reasons I've always been drawn to the poetry slam community, the spoken word language arts community that we are so in, involved in is because there is an openness there. 
there's a willingness to support anyone who shows up because everybody understands how valuable it is to express oneself by way of the page or by way of the of the spoken word so we're back on the pulse of community you and i are here we are talking and the people in the audience listening on the radio and yet you and i are exchanging uh, imagery by way of this zoom call and i'm remembering all that activity and i know that even though we don't see each other much and we haven't seen each other in in many years as soon as we connect that the vitality of that community just starts to grow and, and come to come to life so perhaps as writers this idea of writing with others getting in the community is is a good thing and maybe this call will encourage you to move in that direction i don't know right here in public we we make a big move creatively what do you think gail I think that one of the most awesome conversations you can have as an artist is that conversation that redirects you back to your art. Because that's where the love is. That's where you come to understand over and 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 over again, how precious, how talented, how marvelous, how fertile, how rich, how deep, how worthy, how important you really are. Right. So as writers, we go out into the world and, you know, we're not always paid or we're not always respected or we're not always seen. But then we come back home to each other. And so I think that that is one of the most important things that you can do as a creative is just make sure that in some way, some shape, some form that you stay tethered to your community. I love the word tethered to the community. I like that so much. And as we are talking, you are reminding me of how important it is. I, I have a community of people I gather with. I, like I said earlier on the call, we do this thing every Saturday morning, get together and do this imaginative storm writing prompt of the week. I have that community and I treasure those people I know on Zoom and it has a lot of value. And it has value similar to the value that that you and I have experienced in our poetry community. The difference, though, in the Zoom call, most of the people on the call I don't know in person. What we're talking about is this living, breathing entity of creative people who gather around the big fire and have some celebration of, of life as the fire flies up into the night sky and we're all gathered around and we know that we are as much a part of the fire as the fire is a part of us and anybody can join it this is not an exclusive group we have no guards at the gate you know the only guard that exists in this community is is the guard that you might have in your own life which might say, well, gee, I don't know if I belong. Maybe I shouldn't enter this. I can't walk through the door. But that's on that's on the individual, not on the community. I think there are a few guards at the gate, but not the mean ones, not like the girls in high school who didn't like your hair. And so you couldn't eat lunch with them. You had to go to the other cafeteria table, not like those kinds of guards. But I think the guards are those of us who really are, are into this thing 
And I don't necessarily mean professionally either. I just mean those of us who have given our lives over to our words and to the words of others, those of us who are just in it, deep in, we stay. Those folks who come around for other reasons, they leave. And so the, 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 the community, as I understand it, kind of is a, like one of those self-cleaning ovens. Go on. And that's what I love about it. <laughs> I'm, you, you caught me. I came up a bit short, Gail, because I'm like, yeah, I've never okay. thought of the poetry community as a self-cleaning oven. But in fact, it is true. That's how it works. So in a sense, there are natural guards, perhaps, or natural revisions or editing or vetting where people do come into it and they sample and then they go on their way. Yep. And then the people that have been in it a long time can't imagine ever leaving it. They just simply one day they die. And we have lost many poets throughout the years by way of that exit. And they, they do come and they spend the time in the community and then they pass on, but they're always remembered and they're honored and they are cel celebrated. Their memories are celebrated. So I guess this is a lifelong sort of thing that we don't even commit to. We just get involved in it and it never occurs to us to leave it. So funny, right? Because what I found in my life is the stuff that I get all hype about, like, oh my God, this is going to change my whole life. So let me get my best dress and put it on, right? Those things for me, even like being on 60 Minutes, right? I thought the world was going to bang my door down after that happened. Those are not the things that are transformative. And then I decided to make a left. And then I decided, what the hell? I'm going to go to Asheville for the poetry slum, slam, slam. I don't even remember what it was called, but I'm going to go down there for that. And then voila. So stay open. I hear a lot of people talking about they don't take exposure gigs because exposure doesn't feed them. And I get that. But every now and then you take a gig, the gig feels stupid. The gig feels meaningless. And then you take it anyway, and oh my God, you meet your husband. <laughs> That's true. And if you don't meet your husband, you you fall in love with somebody, or you might re-fall in love with yourself, or even beyond that, you might have only 10 people in the room, and that one person in the room in the back that's maybe shy comes away <laughs> thinking, my gosh, I've, I, 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 I'm going to do this too. And the next thing you know, they emerge and they bloom and they blossom. So you're absolutely right. You never know when that's going to happen. And you do know that the likelihood of it happening over and over increases if you stay in the in the soup, if you will, stay in they the momentum. Tethered. Yeah. Tethered. Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear what I said? You, you're in a room, you said you're in a room with 10 people and that one person, and then I said has COVID, man. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I mean that's not funny, right? But it's like it's, well, it's 
reliving you, it. You really never know what's what's going to happen. The only thing you can have control over is that you say yes and you stand up or you stay seated and you respond appropriately to the people in, in, in front of you. And on that note, do you by any chance have a, a something you could offer us poetically, a poem that you could read for us or perform for us? Because I know that people would love to hear some of your work. One of these days, I'm going to write 100 poems about my father. I'll start by describing the black of his skin and end up telling you how his lashes left as he aged, how his stomach was sidewalk flat till he stopped smoking and how no one could figure out where his accent came from. Poem number two. One Christmas, mama used her overtime to fill half the floor with toys for my brother and sister. Daddy bragged, me and Lucille, man, we worked hard for these gifts. And mama knocked his ass to the floor in front of Miss Dorothy, poem number seven. After arguments, daddy sometimes lived in his big thighed mama's house in Florence, South Carolina, 45 minutes from south of the border. 12 footsteps carried us from the front door to the back, but we loved that house with daddy's flowers smiling in the front yard because daddy was there. When he died, we didn't know what to do with the house, so we let the city eat it, poem number five. The street hummed with cars. One of those cars hit daddy, but didn't hurt him too much. Just pissed him off, poem number eight. Daddy loved to drive. When he came to see me at Howard, he had two drug addicts in the back seat. Girl, I was so scared when I picked them up. Whoa, I was zigzagging across the road. Don't let me forget to write poem number 52. About the night mama put a fistful of salt in daddy's grits. Seal, you trying to kill me? And she said, nope rolling her eyes and stirring in the butter, swimming on top, refusing to melt. Number 43, my father painted houses, not a drop on the floor, not a drop. Number 22, my hands are his. Number 36 will be hard to write. It'll be called daddy's land. And it'll talk about how every time I go to New York, I see his face on cafe windows, smell him in the steam that forces itself up through the broken teeth of sidewalk grates, number 71. My daddy, Willie Bill Danley, danced way better than yours. Our feet wiped the floor at my wedding reception. He'd take us to church, number 52, and pray with us. His ashy fingertips jutted inside his nose. He rubbed our noses when we were born so they wouldn't be wide like his. Poem number four. Before my sister, there was Dennis, my father's oldest son. Eventually, after years of longing for our father, 
Dennis offered himself up to crack, became a master carver, transforming stone into steeple and dying with our father's name on his lips and in his hands. Three thick lines made dad's forehead look like a sheet of notebook paper. This metaphor would make poem number 48 so resonant. My daughter, my daughter is something. Man, you should see, you should see my daughter. She's a cute little thing. You should hear those words when she speaks those poems. Poem number three. I never saw my daddy young and silly with honeybees in his Afro. Number two. My favorite colors are the six shades of red. He painted my heart. Number 13, toward the end of his life, he thought my brother was the cab driver. Daddy was 86 when he died. My brother put him in a little nursing home where he laughed and ate green jello with his friends. The prostate cancer didn't take him. The dementia did. It just chewed our memories down to this. Gail, do you love your father? Yes, daddy. I love all of you. Constantly. Poem number 100 will paint the blue carnations that danced around his casket and landed at the corners of his eyes. He always smiled at me. Thank you, Gail. You're welcome, Jim. That was a beautiful, beautiful piece. And I can see that it lives right there with you in a very, very strong way. And, and thank I, God it doesn't just live in my to-do list, but it actually made its way to the to-done list. It's on the to-done list. And I love the, the casual way you included all of those numbers and you moved around with those numbers. I know, you know, structurally speaking, that's a, beautiful, beautiful way to do something. And I've heard many times from storytellers, they'll say, if you use numbers in a piece, it brings a grounding to the, to the piece. And it, and it was just a well, well done. And I feel like I know your father. And I remember driving past south of the border for people who are listening. They, I think you might've been referencing the state line between North Carolina and South Carolina on I-95 headed south. And if you've ever driven I-95, there's this huge business called South of the Border and people use it as a landmark. And I, I thought, oh my gosh, I remember driving past that many, many, many times. And that's a very Southern thing to reference, of course. And since you are referencing your Southern experience, why wouldn't you put south of the border in? So thank you for sharing that wonderful, wonderful poem. And it, it, it brings me just around to opening up the last part of our time together. Tell us about your writing projects that you're doing now and how 
all of this poetry has led you into some really dynamic things that you're up to. And maybe you can reference inspiration from your father that keeps you moving through all of this. Maybe, I don't know, but I got to let the space beneath my eyes dry up a little bit, you know, cause that was daddy. I think that when we as poets infuse whatever we create with our blood, with our heart, it can't lose. It just can't lose. It can't go wrong when you, when you give yourself to it. So even though I'm a technophobe and I'm kind of growing out of some of that, but at heart, I'm a technophobe, but during the height of the pandemic, I got busy instead of everybody else was running scared in education. And, you know, scared is oftentimes an opportunity when everybody else is panicking, right? So everybody was wondering like how they were gonna continue to deliver art into schools, you know, with schools all closed down. And I decided to use the virtual medium that we were all trapped in and still be Gail in the virtual medium. And I created a series of poetry lessons that teachers could just press play. And there's Gail right there in the classroom teaching you 30 years of what she's learned in the classroom and, and distilling it down and giving it to you in these five minute bites, right? Called lessons in poetry. And I got really excited about it because I knew that I was on to something, right? Nobody had to tell me, oh, that's good. No, I knew I was on to something. And then what I also did, Jim, is I wanted to give it, you know, that teacher cred. Teachers have things that they expect. And if you don't give those things to them, they might not consider your work worthy of their classroom. And so I went to a few teacher friends of mine and I had them write real bona fide lesson plans to go with these teaching videos that I had shot, right? And so I yeah, just created this whole like thing, this whole beautiful product right and so it's such a pleasure every time I talk about it every time I think about it every time somebody asks me about lessons in poetry every time somebody calls me and says I want to get one of those uh, show me how to get the money to bring this into my classroom I'm just I come alive I'm reborn <laughs> every time I think about what I've done so how does it work? What kind of lessons do you offer? And I say this because people who listen to this show often tell me that they aspire to write poetry themselves. So what would be an example of a lesson you might offer a student? And maybe you could offer these one of those lessons now just so folks can get a sense of the work. I mean, it goes from scratch to taking the pound cake out of the oven. So it goes from that insecurity that we all feel about, I'm not a good writer. You're a writer, I'm not. You were born with that, so you're good at it. But me, I suck at writing. I don't even have ideas for a poem. So it starts right there where most of us are. 
and it just walks through the progression. Okay, now you got the idea. Okay, you ready? Let's just start writing. Don't ah, don't put that pencil down. Okay, now you got you got something written. Okay, read it out loud. Okay, good. Uh, you want to add a little simile to it? So it's just it's just the sweetest way. <laughs> uh, I think a real mothering, a very gale way of going from I can't do this to oh look at me. I'm standing up in the classroom and I'm about to do this poem for you. So it's all those steps that carry us from insecurity to total confidence. I think, you know what? Poetry just happens to be the vehicle. I could be teaching anything in those videos. It's all about going from doubt to self-love. You said mothering. And I immediately flashed on a mother bird teaching its baby birds how to fly. And the baby birds hop up on the edge of the nest and they flap their little wings. And then the next day they hop again and they flap. And maybe on the third day they hop again and they flap and off they go. And now they're out of the nest. They'll never come back. And then the mama bird, probably the papa bird as well, gathers around and helps the little bird hop a bit and fly and within a day or two the little birds up flying around and then at some point the bird matures and it becomes the papa bird or the mama bird doing exactly the same thing i had that sense of how this work that you do evolves students in the direction of full flight that's good i mean hopefully they come back and say you touched me your poetry touched me what you showed me, I, I had to find my way back. I had to look you up and tell you, Miss Gale, that when you came 20 years ago, you changed my whole life. So hopefully, I mean, I like the bird metaphor. I, I really love that it's only four days because I ain't got a bunch of patience, right? I want it now. <laughs> um, but yeah, I hope they fly back home and check up on, check up on this old lady. So as you move forward in the work that you're, you're doing, what are some of the things that you are involved in beyond your educational work creatively? What are you doing creatively now that gives you juice? I work out every single day. Since 89, since my mom was diagnosed with lung cancer, I hit the high school track. And if I miss a day, it better be a good reason. I love cooking. I am changing a lot of other things about my life. And I'm really, I'm like on a teacher tour. So any teachers listening, if you want to spend a little time, you know, we go outside and, and get something to eat, you know, I'm really like getting into teachers lately and thanking them for what they have done for me, what they did for the little bitty Gale and what they do for the 55 year old Gale. So those are things that are happening. Do you have one memory of a teacher when you were a little bitty Gail that you cling to? I had a fourth grade teacher, Miss, Miss Epps, and she was a big lady and she wore a detachable bun on the top of her head. This was before people were doing lots of weaves and I came to her one day. Yes, she had her glasses on and I told her that Marcus Strozier was messing with me and trying to beat me up every day at playtime. 
And she was like, why are you telling me that? You go handle that. And it made me really strong. It made me a poet. It made me understand that I was going to have to figure out how to make it through this world. And it made me resilient. And it made me a writer. You were right when you said the hour would fly by. Um, and I, I feel like this whole conversation with you has been a poem. And it's made me see some things very, very clearly. So I feel really grateful that you asked me about my lessons in poetry. You know, really grateful for that, being able to do that shout out. And more importantly, Jim, just feeling good that you and me are here and we're here together because I think that is testimony to the power of poetry. Gail Danley, thank you for that wonderful comment you just made. And I really do appreciate you taking the time out of your day to be on this show with us and share your stories and, and your enthusiasm and your memories. I, I appreciate it so much. So thanks so much. You are welcome. You take good care of yourself. And that, my friends, was Gail Danley, National Poetry Slam champion who won her title in Asheville, North Carolina in 1994 and has continued on to this day in the poetry vibe, in the poetry arena, in the poetry community, as you've just learned. I'm reminded of a story that is connected to the Poetry Slam. If you've listened to this show, you know I tend to dwell on the idea of poetics and what poetry does for people and why it's so important. That's because it's been good to me. As you know, Gail won the National Poetry Slam Championships in 1994. I may have also mentioned that the poetry slam scene in Asheville started in 1991, went on 92, 93, 94, and continues to this day. Well, before Gale showed up in Asheville in 1994, we were already doing serious poetry gatherings and slams at this wonderful place called the Green Door on Carolina Lane in downtown Asheville. So in 1993, the year before Gale came to Asheville and competed in the National Poetry Slam Championships, we formed a team, a poetry slam team. And we were okay. Actually, we weren't really that great, but we wanted to be in the game. So we managed to put together a poetry slam team to head west to San Francisco. Alan Wolf, Cecil Bothwell, Chris Llewellyn, and I were on the team. And when we landed in San Francisco, we went to the rental car desk and inquired for a cheap economy rental car. Turns out they didn't have a cheap economy rental car. What they had was a blue Lincoln Town Car. So they upgraded us for the same price as the economy car. So off we went out of the San Francisco airport into San Francisco to compete in the National Poetry Slam Championship, riding in grand style in our blue Lincoln Continental Town Car. We thought we were hot stuff. We also knew 
that we likely wouldn't win the championship. We probably wouldn't even qualify because we were very new at all of this competition stuff. We did think, however, we would get some notice in our blue town car, which in fact, I believe we kind of did, but the novelty wore off after a day or so and people ceased to notice it. But we, however, did enjoy riding around in the comfort and we took a drive up the coastal highway through Marin County to look at the seals and the waves crashing on the rocks and see the seagulls and other seabirds flying around and squawking. And of course, if you've ever been to San Francisco, you know the area is cool, especially along the coast. It's actually sometimes really chilly, unlike the Carolina coast in August, which is warm. And it was August. The Poetry Slam in San Francisco was happening during the month of August. So we were a little surprised to find the cool and yet it was fine and the seagulls were there and everything was great. And then we drove back into San Francisco down some curvy roads under some eucalyptus trees. And we were really rather dandy about the whole thing, having just a great, great time. And the week proceeded and we competed in the competition. We did lose. We weren't very good at it. And there were really some great poets there. Patricia Smith was there. Mark Smith was there. I even have some photographs from that time in my archives. Slide photographs that I've turned to digital photographs. So I now have use of them and a bit of those memories to, to look at on my computer screen. Anyway, we stood out in front of City Lights Bookstore, owned by Lawrence Ferlinghetti, and performed there. And Lawrence Ferlinghetti was there. He recently died. He was over a hundred. In fact, before Lawrence Ferlinghetti died, he finished his last novel and published it on his hundredth birthday. So hats off to Lawrence Ferlinghetti, who was good friends with George Whitman, who owned Shakespeare and Company. And you can find photographs online of the two men sitting together in their later years, talking like old friends often talk in that relaxed manner that only two people who've known each other for decades can talk, especially in their later years. And so there we were in front of Lawrence Ferlinghetti's City Lights bookstore, performing our poetry and being in the vibe. And so the week passed and our little poetry team got eliminated and the Friday night semifinals came and we were in the audience and watched the teams compete and rooted for our friends. And then Saturday night, the finals came and the auditorium filled up and, and we had the final competition. And Team Boston won that year. And Patricia Smith was the individual champion that year. And the following year in Asheville, Gail Danley was the individual champion. And Cleveland won in 1994 in Asheville. But in 1993, when we were watching the finals, we saw Boston win and everybody cheered. And afterwards, we went out to a late night party, which continued on late into the night, as you might expect. So we got up the next morning and packed our bags put them in the trunk of our blue Lincoln Continental Town car and headed off to the San Francisco airport. Chris Llewellyn, Cecil Bothwell, and Alan Wolfe were all headed back to Asheville. I, on the other hand, was headed to London. I was on my way to Lagos, Nigeria, 
to do a tour of, of West African international schools. I'd been invited to a teacher's conference in Accra, Ghana, so my plan was to fly into Lagos, from there go over to Accra, and then afterwards I was scheduled to go to Dakar, Senegal, to the international school there, and then up to Nouakchott, Mauritania, to the a little international school at the American Embassy, and then head on over to the capital of Cameroon, Yaoundé, and then I made my way back to the Lagos airport and flew to Nice for a week-long residency in the International School of Nice and then made my way back to the States. So I was in for a long trip that day at the end of the National Poetry Slam Championship, standing there on a busy, busy, busy Sunday afternoon, surrounded by people. And I was tired, as you might imagine, because we had been really throwing ourselves into our time in San Francisco. So I was thinking, oh my gosh, if I could only have some relaxation, some comfort. And I was also thinking about my seat on the airplane. And even though it was British air and somewhat comfortable, I knew that my coach seat would be crowded and the flight from San Francisco overnight to London would be a long haul. So when I stepped up to the counter to check in, I probably had that tight coach seat in mind. And I looked at the woman who was behind the counter and she smiled back as she smiled at everybody and said, good afternoon, how can I help you? I said, I'm checking in for my flight to London. Here's my passport. What else do you need? And she said, well, that'll be fine. And then for some reason, I was inspired probably because I was thinking about that coach seat. So I said to her, I said, I I'm wondering if, if I recite a poem to you, would you upgrade me to business class? And it was such a, an unusual question. She looked at me for a moment and she said, uh, well, and looked around and I guess she was checking to see if she had time to hear a poem. And she said, well, well, give it a try. So I, I leaned into the counter, and she stood there looking at me, and I recited a poem by Edwin Morgan titled Strawberries, and here's how it goes. There were never strawberries like the ones we had that sultry afternoon sitting on the steps of the open French window, your knees held in mine, the blue plates in our laps the strawberries glistening in the hot sunlight. We dipped them in sugar, not hurrying the feast for one to come. The blue plates laid on the stone together with the two forks crossed. I bent toward you, sweet in that air, from your eager mouth the taste of strawberries. In my memory, lean back again, let me love you. Let the sun beat on our forgiveness forgetfulness, one hour of heat, intense, and summer lightning on the Kilpatrick Hills. Let the storm wash the plates. And when I finished with the poem, she smiled at me and looked back down at her work as if nothing had happened, filled out the rest of the ticket and did a few other things, checked my passport, looked back up at me, smiled, and she handed me my ticket, and she said, you have a nice flight. 
And I looked down and there it was, business class to London. And so as you might imagine, I was very relieved. And yes, indeed, I did have a nice flight to London and the food was good and all was well in the kingdom. And so that was how I ended my National Poetry Slam experience in San Francisco. And poetry does pay, as you can see, and I'm glad to report that little story. Of course, that was 1993 when the flight restrictions were a lot less rigorous than they are now. So thank you for listening to my conversation with Gail Danley, and she inspired me to tell the story about going to to the poetry championships in San Francisco. And then, as you already know, Gail won the 1994 National Poetry Slam Individual Championships. So there you go, my friends. We've arrived at the almost to the top of the hour. So thank you ever so much for listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. And I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org. The voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI out of House New Mexico Cultural Energy Radio. Thanks, Walter Parks, for your theme song, WalterParks.com, if you're interested in Walter's music. You can reach out to me, JamesNave.com, and I always welcome emails from, from you. If you have a story to tell, I'd love to hear it. If you'd like to join me for my Saturday morning writing prompt of the week sessions, please do. You can always find the link to the Zoom call at imaginativestorm.com. The door is always open and we would love to have you. So thank you for considering that. And most especially, thank you for tuning in, listening to Twice Five Miles Radio. I really do appreciate it. And I hope you tune in again next time. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.